Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. You know, this day, we're going to talk about the resiliency of co-ops, what co-ops are are doing. But I want to start talking about the United Nations. The United Nations, in 2013, in their General Assembly, they proclaimed 10 years, the decade for people of African descent with the theme that people of African descent should be recognized, there should be justice and development. The main purpose was to promote respect, protection, and fulfillment of all human rights and fundamental freedoms by people of African descent. The focus of this UN decade of people of African descent was to strengthen national, regional, and international actions and cooperation for full employment of economic, social, cultural, civic, and political rights of people of African descent and their full and equal participation in all aspects of society. To respect the diverse heritage, culture, and contributions of people of African descent and to adopt and strengthen national, regional, and international legal framework in accordance with the Durban Declaration and Program of Action and International Convention, the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. So this was done in 2013, but in 2019, there there was no visible elevation of this international decade of the United States. So a group of folks in the Southern Collaborative was formed in 2019 with the vision focused on the country's poorest region, the historical Southern Black Belt. That these, the folks in this 13 states in the South are prosperous, respected, and participate in all aspects of American society. It's interesting that this whole declaration, this whole decade of declaring that folks of African descent was just not heard of, not talked about. And these folks in the South decided, okay, nobody else is doing this. There's no visible uh, elevation of this decade. So we folks in the South are going to do this. They wanted to bring greater empowerment and honor the rich history, culture, and gradual activism of African descendants in the southern region of the United States to document the ongoing impact of slavery, racial apartheid, continued systemic racism, white supremacy, and 
violence that permeates every faucet of the daily lives of people of African descent. You know, also, we got economic, political, and social realities. We could talk all day about the economic issues with black versus white with the wealth gap. Before the pandemic, a white family of four had $171,000 net worth. They owned more than they owed at the tone of 171,000 were blocked with 17,000. It just this wealth gap caused by discrimination at the core of it, discriminated systemic discrimination. So they wanted to see how we could support reparations and other human rights remedies for greater justice development and self-determination for people of African descent in the South. So um, we look at not only what happened in the South, but this is throughout the U.S., but this group took it upon themselves to look at what is going on, what has been happening in the United States, in this black Southern Black Belt, and what are some of the focus areas they could center their conversation about to come out of this? So if you look at recognition, justice, and development as the three pillars of this international decade for people of African descent, they had recommended under recognition voting rights, education, gather information, that there is participation and inclusion of black folks under recognition, under justice, transforming our criminal justice system, and then looking at special measures, development, right to develop and measure against poverty, land development, ownership, retention, and cooperative economics, mutual aid, and the development of education, employment, health, housing. So these are the three main pillars of this international decade for people of African descent. Recognize what's going on, have justice, and develop. A lot having to do under this development of economics and cooperatives is right in the middle of that. So this group of Southern, the Southern, this 13 states, they created committees and through contact of folks that, that I have had on this program, I was invited to join these committees and work on this cooperative economic development. So that's the section um, that I've been working on with this group. And it's phenomenal that this group, uh, this UN, this United Nations, this international piece is looking at people of African descent. And then this Southern group in America, in the Southern United States, 
wanted to see how we could have prosperity, be respected, and equitable participation in all aspects of American society. And that's just is not well known. But co-ops from this group in the South is right in the middle of this. Right in the middle of uh, the, the actions that folks are looking at. So that's the United Nations. International, people of African descent, what can we do around the world to support people of African descent when there are systemic discrimination throughout the world? And fortunately, I've been able to travel and I've witnessed discrimination uh, coming back from Hawaii, in Australia. The worst was in Brussels, and I had some in in Mexico, but I don't know if that was against Africans or against Americans. But I've witnessed discrimination throughout the world. And when I lived in Puerto Rico, it was very, very, it was interesting that in Puerto Rico, I expected that blacks and Puerto Ricanians would be on the same page, only to find out that white, light-skinned Puerto Ricanians discriminate against dark-skinned Puerto Ricanians. It, the, the whole culture in Puerto Rico had the same systemic discriminations that we find in the United States, which I just found awful and did not expect it. So here we have the UN saying we're going to have these 10 years. Now, it started in 2014 and went through 2024 in these 10 years, this decade. But the folks in the South said in 2019, we're going to create these policies and they will go beyond 2024. That's the United Nations. So, ladies and gentlemen, I I said, okay, let's take a look at what's been happening in the U.S. in, in the past. This is what the United Nations has said we want to do. And so I wanted to take a look at what what has the NAACP been doing? What um, Al Sharpton has a group called National Action Network. What do they do? Reverend Barber has, is heading up a group called the Poor People's Campaign. What, is, what are they doing in these areas for folks of African descent in the United States? Black Panthers, what were, what were they about? Uh, So all of these different organizations, and we have black churches, black political organizations, we have fraternities and sororities, we have all of these different groups uh, headed by a lot of ministers, Reverend Jesse Jackson and his Rainbow Coalition, uh, go back to W.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey and Martin Luther King. All of these different people and organizations looking to help black folks in America. So we're going to take our first break now. Then we want to come back and look at some of these different groups to see what they have been about to help black Americans. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that now. Information is power. 
you're absolutely correct, um, WOL. That makes you a great partner because National Cooperative Bank has been sponsoring this program. This is our eighth year, this October that we're in. We started eight years ago. We were only going to do this for one month to talk about co-op. But we've just had an outpouring of folks that have liked this program. We like doing it. We like giving you the information. And if you take this information and go out and put it into action, that's where you get the power. Okay, that's where you get power. Information by itself is not the power. It's putting in action. You have no power from gasoline until you put some action to it, put some fire to it, and you get all kinds of action, all kinds of power. The action, though, is striking that match or putting it into a car, and those spark plugs ignite the gas, gives you power to move the car or whatever you're trying to move. Hey, WOL says... Information is power. We're giving you information about co-ops. We've been talking about the UN decade of people from the Africa diaspora. And now we're going to talk a little bit about these different organizations that have been working throughout the United States. The Black Panthers. It was founded to protect black people from police brutality. Wow. Malcolm X influenced the Black Panthers and President Johnson condemned them. They were considered a terrorist organization, okay? They supported the Second Amendment. They carried guns. They monitored police activity, and the Black Panther Party was in support of all oppressed groups. What you did not know, I did not know, that Black Panther Party had a free breakfast for children program, and that forced the government to expand its own school food program. They provided sickle cell anemia screening, the Black Panthers did. They created many, many community programs, free ambulance, free dental, free health clinic, nutrition classes, monitor police brutality, clothing distribution, classes on politics and economics, class on self-defense and first aid, transportation to upstate prison for family members to inmates, drug and alcohol rehabilitation. You just did not hear about the Black Panther Party doing all of these different programs. Only thing I heard on the television and radio in Bluefield, West Virginia, was the program that was against them, against them taking up arms. And they were considered a terrorist organization, and the FBI had them on the, like, the most wanted list. But it's no surprise that the Black Panther Party was against capitalism. In order to bring effective change, they believed that you had to end capitalism and establish a socialist society. And I want to say that social society, you talk about economics, not political. Social society is that the workers own the means of production. The workers own the products that are produced, and the workers own the profit from those products being sold. The Black Panther Party welcomed alliances with white folks, and there was a white uh, Panther Party. They were international and at one point, a woman led them. The Black Panther Party was really, really great, but that's not what was in the newspaper. They had their own newspaper, and they established schools. So when you look at the Black Panther Party, they, they were doing a lot of the things that other organizations, like NAACP, Urban League, National Action Network, Rainbow Coalition, Poor People's Campaign, 
Black Lives Matter, very, very similar policies. The difference in the Black Panther Party was let's take up arms and protect ourselves. Huge difference. And therefore, white America was totally against them. I remember watching on TV brothers coming out similar to Malcolm X, except that the brothers had guns. Malcolm X and the brothers did not have guns, but they were organized. It was kind of nice looking at these brothers, clean, well-dressed, mannerable, organized, interesting. But with the same kinds of goals that the United Nations is doing in their decade for people of African descent. That was the Black Panther Party. Now, let's go and, and talk about the National Action Network, which was founded in 1991 by Reverend Al Sharpton to promote a modern civil rights agenda that includes the right for one standard of justice, decency, and equal opportunities for all people, regardless of race, religion, nationality, sexual orientation, class, or gender. So their priority is voting rights, criminal justice, gun violence is their second priority, education, sounds like the Panther Party, jobs and economy. Now, this just seems like that's the one thing that all of these organizations are talking about is more of the same. Go get an education and get a job. Work within the capitalistic society. Health and hunger. They also talk about their sixth priority for National Action Network was the technology and telecommunications. And their seventh one was immigration reform. It would be just phenomenal if you could get the Black Panthers and the non the National Action Network of folks together and compare their policy and work together. It'd be very, very interesting, particularly the folks in the Black Panther Party might say, let's don't take up guns, let's do this peacefully, as did Martin Luther King. We can get more done by doing it peacefully. It is amazing the similarities of groups in the 60s, groups of today, and the similarities. So let's talk about the Poor People's Campaign. Reverend Barber took that over from Martin Luther King in the 60s. And the Poor People Campaign, their first declaration of fundamental rights and poor people's moral agenda. That is the end of systemic racism. That seems very, very familiar. The UN has talked about it, systemic racism worldwide. Black Panther Party talked about it, particularly police brutality. Systemic racism is having voter rights. I thought that's National Action Network talking about that. What I like about the Four People's Campaign, they really include the history of Native American, African Natives, and First Nations, and how terrible America has treated them. So you go to poverty and inequality. The U.S. economy has grown 18-fold in the past 50 years, but the wealth has grown to a few people. The cost of living has increased, social programs have decreased, and have been cut drastically so that poor people are in worse shape today than we were 50 years ago. It is awful. And the Poor People's Campaign is highlighting how awful it is 
where 51% of children under the age of 18 are poor, 41% of the 60 or 65 million men are poor, 45% or 74 million women are poor. Non-white, 65 million non-white are poor, but the difference is that's only 33% of the white population. And you have of blacks, you have 23 million of blacks are poor compared to 65 million whites, but that's 60% of the black population are poor. 64% of Latino Latino Americans are poor, but there's only 38 million. So you have more whites that are poor than blacks and brown put together. 8 million Asians, 2 million Native Americans. It hits us everywhere, everywhere. So we're going to take our second break and we're going to come back and talk more about the Poor People's Campaign. And it's very, very similar to Black Panthers, National Action Network. And then we're talking about NAACP and what they've been doing and what their goals are. And after we talk about that, we'll come back and talk about what the cooperative economics is, how co-ops fit in solving these issues. We'll be right back, everybody. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We're talking about the UN decade of for people of African descent, and the UN created this in, in December of 2013. It went from January 1, 2015, through December 31 of 2024. So we only have a couple more years in this decade. But when these uh, folks in the South looked and said that there's nobody in the U.S. looking at this, so why don't we look at this international decade in the South and see what we can do to put together a plan for folks of African descent, which will go beyond 2024 and look at recognition, justice, and development, with cooperatives being right in the middle of this, different plans. So we went and looked at Black Panther Party, National Action Network, and we were talking about Poor People's Campaign. And there's one, I'll just get to the chase right here. When I look at these policies, they all, in their economic piece, they mainly talk about black folks doing what my parents told me to do. And most of our parents say, let's get a good education boy and get a job. Work within the capitalistic system. And the capitalistic system, I have learned, by definition, holds us down. It's systemic racism is critical. Matter of fact, I believe that economics is the main reason for racism and any other kind of ism. Povertyism. At the core of it is some people saying we are going to extract, we're going to take the profits, and we're going to leave people poor, and we're going to tell them it's their fault that they're poor, and we're going to make sure that poverty exists so that there's always somebody to fill that $7 an hour job. Okay. And I can charge them phenomenal interest rates. If I give them a loan, I'm going to charge them phenomenal interest rates. Matter of fact, I'm going to charge them phenomenal interest rates just to cash their paycheck. So I keep 
getting them to have low income, these poor people, and we were just talking about that, the Poor People's Campaign came out and said there are 65 million white people, only 33% of the white population, but 65 million white people, and that's more white people that are poor than black and brown put together. 23 million black people, but that's 60% of the population. That's why they focus on black people being poor, because you can go into black people's neighborhood and you can see the poverty much more readily, if you will. Same thing with Latin Americans. For Latinx people, Latinx people, you have 38 million people, but that's 64% of the population. So again, when you have 60% of the black people poor and 64% of Latinx people poor, you can see that. It's clear. But together, that is only 62 million people only compared to 65 million white folk. So you have 62 million black and brown people poor compared to 65 million white people. More white people poor than black folk and brown people put together. But what's sad of it, 51% of children under the age of 18, 38 million children are poor. Too many of these children go to bed hungry. And we have a rich society, the richest in the world, and we have all of this poverty. And you look at what people say solutions are. Go to National Action Network. Get more jobs. Get an education, get more jobs. Okay. Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign say that we in prison attain more people, especially poor people, than any country in the world. We build this prison system. We have low wages, less than seven bucks an hour. You house them and feed them, give them five dollars a month, and you work them and you work them. They have no, no benefits. Keep imprisoned the poor people. And then we have all of this climate change and all these other ecological issues. Poor water, Flint, Michigan. If you look at where folks dump trash, it is in these neighborhoods where poor people live. The infrastructure, the bill that Biden is putting forth will help us a lot in urban areas, but also in poor communities particularly where there's these mountaintops like in West Virginia. They they take off the mountaintops, they remove the coal, and they leave ash pond, and that goes into the water. And then as Reverend Barber talked about so eloquently is the war economy and militarism. 50% of every federal discretionary dollar goes to military spending, and only 15% to end poverty, poverty programs to help everyday people. So instead of waging a war on poverty that we talked about in the 60s, there's a war against the poor, okay, to benefit a few. Poor People's Campaign, but the thing that the Poor People's Campaign talk about, as does the National Action Network, is let's raise the minimum wage. You know, I like that idea, but as you can see, as the consequences of COVID, and the supply chain, everything has gone up. Timber has gone up, food has gone up, transportation has gone up. 
And if you raise the minimum wage from seven and a half dollars an hour to fifteen dollars an hour, what the economists call a basket of good bread, it'll go up. If it's three dollars a loaf now, and if the cost of labor goes up fifty percent, that means that the cost of producing the flour is going to go up. Everything that goes in the bread is going to go up. Plus, the manufacturing of the bread is going to go up. The cost is going to go up. And I would suggest to you that those capitalists that own those manufacturing facilities and own the flour and own all of the ingredients in there, they're going to want to get the same percentage return. So they're going to raise the cost so that the same percentage return on their investment. And what you may end up with is that the cost of bread will go up double if the labor goes up double that your cost of goods will go up so that, so that you end up raising the minimum wage and the cost of living will go up so that the poor people will more likely be no better off or marginally better off, but not twice as better off as they were at seven fifty an hour, not because of the cost of goods. And if you get hyperinflation, then it just takes off, then it could be worse off. But that is the answer that you find in most of these policy man, policy initiatives is raising the minimum wage. I like it as an idea, but it is far from optimal, far from optimal. So the NAACP, let's take a look at that, and then we'll go look at the power of co-ops as an answer as opposed to increasing minimum wage and helping people get jobs to work in the capitalistic society. How about helping people to own their own businesses, which is the part of socialism. I don't like to call it that because people get animated. They want to fight when they talk about socialism. We have been so, oh, brainwashed that people confuse communism with socialism or fascism with socialism. But I am interested, I'll take away the label. I won't call it socialism as the Black Panther Party did, but I'll call it, you let the workers to own the businesses. You get the workers to own the means of production. You get the workers to own the products that are produced, and you get the workers to own the profit. That's where you'll get more than $15 an hour. And it will not cause inflation, because what you've been, what you're doing is, you're taking the money that the rich will make and you letting the everyday person, you get the everyday person that 64% of, of the Hispanics and 60% of blacks to own the business, they own the means of production. And therefore they'll own the products and the profit. NAACP under the Biden administration talked about economic empowerment, council student debt, a cover unemployment insurance, Federal minimum wage, here we go again. Universal paid sick leave, increased funding for minorities, okay, particularly increasing the CDFIs. Direct minority business contracting requirements for all federal agencies, that will help increase the business opportunities for minority if they will have these contracting requirements and, and, and get them solved and don't have where white women own the business that their husbands used to own, and then they go get the business, which keeps it in the whites and not in black and brown people. Reverse the racist housing policies of HUD. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And it, it, keep on talking about black workers. 
Okay, they talk about so that's economics. Same same kind of policies though. Education, remove police from schools, environmental, cult, climate justice, health and wealth well being. Similar, similar programs, no matter if it's National Action Network, Black Panther Party, uh NAACP, Poor People's Campaign, restructuring the criminal justice system and voter rights. All of these groups, when you look at their policies, they're so very similar. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois founded the NAACP. It's so interesting to me that he said cooperation, cooperatives, is the answer for blacks. This is in 1906. NAACP has not taken that on. They still talk about what all of these other groups are talking about. Increasing jobs. Work in the capitalistic society, get an education, get skilled. I've been teaching, preaching that almost all of my life before I learned about this cooperative option. Get a, get a good education, boy. The white man can't take it away from you. My grandfather's favorite saying, sober or drunk, get a good education, get a good job. No, get a good education. That's the fifth principle of cooperation education, training, and information. Get that knowledge, get those skills, and own your own business. So we'll come back here and talk about co-ops because co-ops are a way of building economic resiliency, okay, and stabilize the workforce and increase financial wealth, increase dignity, self-worth, self-worth for feeling good about self, and self-worth by having more money in the bank, more money. Okay, we'll come back and talk about this cooperative and the things that co-ops can do. And this is what we're also doing in this group for the Southern groups to answer the questions of what co-ops can do for the UN decade of people of African descent. This cooperative economic working group is looking at this and we'll be coming back to talk to you about co-ops. Own their own businesses. Own the own the profits. We'll be right back. Welcome back everybody. I really want to give a shout out to the National Cooperative Bank. They have been sponsoring this program for the last eight years that we've been on the air. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And we just talked about those low-income communities. 60% of black folks are poor. 64% of Latinx communities are poor. And you know, it's even hard to figure out for Native Americans what percentage of the population is poor. I would suggest to you that it's bigger than that 60 and 64%. But it's hard to get the stats on on that. But as this white society has put their thumb on black communities, brown communities, and native communities, systemic racism, systemic racism has meant that we have not been able to flourish. And whenever we were able to flourish, they would get jealous or say, no, you can't do that like in Tulsa. And then they would come and kill and steal, rape, whatever they wanted to do. 
without being punished. No justice. No justice. So when we talk about National Action Network, the Black Panthers, the Poor People's Campaign, just on and on and on, whether that is Rainbow Coalition, NAACP, all fighting the issues with a white society, minority of people in this white society putting their thumb on black, brown, and native folks. But what a lot of whites don't understand, that 68 million poor people, they do the same thing to you. Growing up in West Virginia, we were in a neighborhood with black and white working poor. Folks that had jobs were poor, and folks that didn't have jobs were worse off. We were all treated the same by the establishment, the rich folks. So I'd like white America to understand that this, this the issue with systemic racism and with economic uh, discrimination, it affects the poor whites just like it does the poor blacks and the poor brown. The only difference is the larger percentage of our population are poor than the white population. And so that is what's put in the news. That's what's put on television. That is what, that's all we hear about is poor blacks and poor whites. But there is, as I've talked to you about before the pandemic, when we had the numbers, 68 million white people compared to 64 million black and brown people. Less numbers of black and brown people poor than white people in America. What do we do about it? I would suggest to you, as we've talked about on this program for eight years, an answer, if not the answer, is where poor people, everyday people, own their own business, learn how to create co-ops. And one of these is worker co-ops. So there are four types of co-ops. Just very quickly, it depends on who owns and controls the business. If the business is owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. And this is the main form of co-ops in the last 10 years that have grown significantly. After the, the 08 recession, after the Great Depression, FDR uh, helped to bring uh, the economy back using co-op cooperatives, both worker co-ops and consumer co-ops. Uh, consumer co-ops are, are co-ops that are owned and controlled by people that use the products and services. And FDR started the rural electric co-ops to help electrify rural areas where 75% of uh, the land mass of the U.S. is 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 electrified by rural electric co-ops. You got housing co-ops, credit union, food co-ops. There's a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, is owned by the patients. You've got these different consumers, and that's a huge number of consumers that belong to co-op. Unfortunately, too often they don't know they belong to a co-op and that they can elect the board of directors and the board of directors set policies and run which programs there happen, how much interest will be charged, what's the, the, the price of the electricity or telephones or broadband, what's the price of the food. The consumer sets those prices through the board of directors and those any of those consumers can run for the board. And then is a purchasing co-op is a co-op that is formed. A lot of times the businesses, farmers will create a worker co-op, a purchasing co-op 
that they come together to buy products and services, have businesses that learn the, the vendors and learn the products and create contracts uh, that give better products and better pricing to a group, either purchasing co-ops. And a marketing co-op is a co-op that is formed to market products. Again, farmers use this. You have Cabot Cream, Orlando Lakes, Ocean Spray. There's the artist group of black women. Uh, yeah, but I think mainly women. No, black, black. Most are women in Ojama in, in Pittsburgh that have a storefront to sell their product. This is a market. This is the four types. FDR was formed the National Rural Electric Co-op that helped us to come out, electrify the U.S. and help us come out of the Great Depression. But co-ops, they're showing a greater resilience in these bad times, greater than the capitalist, the national or traditional enterprises, particularly during COVID-19. And it shows up in several ways. Co-ops, because it's owned by the employees, they're looking out for the group, the total group. What's best for the total group? Okay, so we lost some of ourselves. So we don't make as much profit. So instead of laying off people, let's everybody take a cut and pay. But the employees make that decision. Or let's figure out how we can bring on different products. So you have these co-ops that would do one thing, okay? And then they say, oh, let's do something else. So they figure out other products and other things they can do. So you, you get, all right, we're going to take lower pay, pay so that we don't lose out everything, and we'll either bring on more products. So you find out that worker co-ops, as I said to you, they own the product, they own the profit, so they share in the benefits, and the, and the workers decide what happens to that profit. Some of it will, can go stay in the business for growth, to fund growth, some of it could be used for social responsibility, that what's in society, what's happening in society, what what, are, what needs to happen, and that some of that money can go to that, and some of it can go toward distribution to the members. And this is where people can go from 7 bucks an hour to 20 bucks an hour because they end up with better efficiency. They work smarter. Okay, They learn how to come together and make decisions, so they work smarter. They have control over... What, when they work and how they work, so it's better for their families. And they have control over the profit. And then they share the burden. When there's a downturn, they share the burdens so everybody may take a cut in pay so that nobody loses their job. Or they sit around and think, what can we do? What skill sets do we have? Can we make PPEs, protective equipment? Can we do that? And some textile uh, co-ops did that. Can we deliver food? Maybe we're a taxi company, and now we're going to deliver food. So co-ops, because of just the nature of co-ops, the values and principles, when there's a downturn, they work and they function much better. They make decisions that are best for the group, not for an individual few, as a capitalistic society does, so this U.N. decade of people of African descent have co-ops right in the middle, whether it's housing, health care, education. You can have co-ops that attack all of these issues and all of these particular problems. And then the cooperators, they keep the money when there's a profit. And there's more likely going to be a profit 
because there's information, training, education. This training helps people to understand how to work together, how to solve problems together, and this is what cooperation does. This is why we have this program. I ask you to go to everything.coop, our webpage. You can get over 250 different shows. Look at this. Find out what co-op is in your area. Go shop there or have to start your own co-op. Decide whatever community problems you have and to get more money in your family's pocket, in your friend's purse, and get the nutritional food. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening today. We'll see you next Thursday. And we'll ask you this week to live cooperatively. Do some research and go to our webpage and get more and more information. Information is power. Thank you. Have a great week. 